You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. Stanford professor and former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice has released a new book called Democracy, Stories from the Long Road to Freedom. In it, she discusses her experiences in government and her scholarship on democracy and foreign policy. In May 2017, Rice launched her book tour at FSI, where she is a senior fellow by courtesy. She was joined by three other FSI scholars, director Michael McFall, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, and world-renowned political scientists Francis Fukuyama and Larry Diamond. Professor McFall starts the discussion. Secretary Rice. I'm going to jump back and forth between secretary and professor from time to time. Uh, I was digging around a little bit this morning. And it turns out that not many secretaries of state write books at all. Uh, Most that do write about their time in government, as you've already done. Uh, That book was published in 2010. Uh, And then some write 2011. 2011, Well, one in 10, one in 11. I was just going to get right. So (laughs) I just want to underscore how prolific uh, Secretary Rice is. She's already written two books after leaving the government. Um, uh, the second one, of course, was about your, your life. Usually one, one book is enough. People, uh, you did two after that. But I think there's only one Secretary of State, and that's Henry Kissinger, that has continued to write analytic books after they were Secretary of State. I, I thought of a, there may be some You're missing there. another Other? sitting in the front row. Well, actually, I didn't see George here. Uh, <laughs> well, he, but... <laughs> I didn't. So there's one. Uh, Mike, let me, let me bail yeah, you out. I, He's an economist. <laughs> they write different kinds of books, OK? Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> so uh, it's great to see George here. I did not see him. Uh, I actually carried his, his memoirs on my desk literally for every five years that I was in the US government. Um, and uh, a little uh, magnifying glass that you gave me, George, uh, with the inscription, Trust But Verify has been sitting on my desk for the last 15 years. Uh, And people would come into my office, especially in Moscow, and they would look at your memoirs and say, why are are we looking at that book? Why is that sitting on your desk? Uh, And there's a reason for it. Um, And I don't want to get into a contest of who wrote the best book about their (laughs) time in government, uh, but but, but both both of those are really important books. But but this is a big analytic book. Um, And I'm curious to start off, why? I mean, you know, you do a lot of things in the world right now. You're very busy. You run a company. You're here. You have all these different jobs. You're engaged in, in many things around the world. It takes time, uh, a lot of time, to write a big analytic book like this. Why did you decide to do it? Well, first of all, thanks, Mike, and thanks to my fellow panelists, and thanks to Tom Gilligan. And Stanford is just a great place to be because you have wonderful students, you have wonderful colleagues, and you get a chance to step back from uh, experiences that you've had and try to put them uh, in context. And uh, to a certain extent, I have wanted to write this book almost all my life. Because I think this thing that we call democracy is actually a bit mysterious. How is it that people come to trust these abstractions, constitutions, rule of law, courts, to both promote their interest, to settle their differences, Uh, to find ways for change in an orderly fashion? How is it they come to do that when it would be just easier to uh, trust clan and tribe and family, uh, religious group, 
And so democracy is a little bit mysterious. And yet, I associate myself with those who say that it is the only form of government in which human beings actually reach their full potential and reach their full dignity. And so I've always wanted to understand better uh, what we call democracy, how people get there, how they fail and trip sometimes when they're trying to get there, how they succeed. And um, one reason that I say is maybe it's been there all my life is that I believe I personally have been fortunate enough to be the Soviet specialist at the end of the Cold War. I was fortunate uh, or uh, challenged to be the, the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State uh, after 9-11. But I also experienced one other great democratic transition. I was a child in Birmingham, Alabama. And I watched as America finally, in a second founding, included people like me in We the People. And I relate one episode in the book. I'm with my uncle, and uh, he's picked me up from school, and I'm six years old or so, and there's an election in Alabama. And George Wallace was running for governor. And there are long, long lines of black people, because, of course, the South is segregated at this point. And I say to my uncle, I've heard of this man, George Wallace, and I've heard he's not good for, for Negroes, as we were called in the days. So I say to him, so uh, Alto, uh, if all those people are voting, then clearly George Wallace can't win. And my uncle said, no. He said, um, Negroes are a large majority, a large minority, but we're still a minority, so he's going to win. And I looked at him and I said, then why do they bother? And my uncle said, because they know one day that vote will matter. And as I've watched long lines of people on every continent on the earth stand in line believing that one day that vote will matter, I have come to believe that one of the most important moral obligations that we have as people who are fortunate enough to be among those whose votes matter, that we have to advocate and speak for them. And so I wanted to write a book that um, could speak to my colleagues who study democracy, that's Professor Rice, and to my students, uh, some of whom are here, that's Professor Rice. But also, as Secretary Rice, I've watched those struggles, and I wanted the book to be by both of them. Great answer. Uh, Larry, you get the first question, soliloquy, comments. Well, um, let me say, uh, as a democracy scholar, I think it is a very important book about democracy and a highly original book about democracy because of the way, and we've already heard the first of the many ways, the book weaves back and forth through, um, in between an analysis of the state of democracy in the world and your personal experience. This is an incredibly moving book. It's an eloquent tribute to um, the American experience, uh, to America's role in the world. I want to ask you about that uh, later. And um, to the moral and practical value uh, of democracy and having your personal experience as Secretary of State and your encounters after you've left uh, government uh, traveling around the world woven into your analysis, I think, makes this a totally unique book. I thought I would just recount um, the five lessons that uh, Condi conveys in this book, give a moment of comment about each one, really a moment, and then ask you the question that I wanted to start with. So let me combine first lessons number one and number five, which are first that work with what is there. We've got to be realistic. Uh, no place is a tabula rasa. 
Uh, and number five, it takes books. So uh, it takes time. It takes a book to understand that it takes time. <laughs> um, so one of the many things I like about this book is the remarkable balance um, between realism. A lot of people have thought of you in your scholarship as a kind of realist. And so they might be surprised to find how much there is a moral core to this book and a moral vision, uh, I think, for the United States that would be good for us to recall now. But we've also got to be realistic about our own experience, which you talk about, and the fact that any kind of democratic progress is an incremental progress. You emphasize it's a linear process. Uh, and um, you know, unless you're kind of you know, maybe lucky enough to get the invoking of some prior experience in a few Central European countries where communism was artificially imposed, you're not going to get to democratic consolidation and liberal democracy quickly. I have really no further comments about those two lessons except to convey them to the audience and embrace them. Then you talk about first presidents mattering and have some uh, very uh, eloquent words about Nelson Mandela and the example uh, he uh, set. I would only note here, I don't disagree with this, that second and third and subsequent presidents matter a lot too. And of course, this now shades into the end of the book and the moment we're at now. But um, we were talking about this before. Um, maybe you could reply to this at some point with the rise of Erdogan, the rise of Duterte, Viktor Orban, of course, in prime ministerial system, prime ministers matter. We're seeing how much damage uh, leaders can do that might be second or third or fifth or sixth when um, democracy is really not firmly consolidated. Or frankly, uh, even as in the case of, um, uh, of Hungary when we thought it was and we're finding out that it wasn't. You talk about crisis presenting danger and opportunity and there's some very interesting discussion which again might surprise people since Last time people checked, they didn't see Latin Americanist in your profile about Colombia, which is a country you care about and um, where I think you convey the Bush administration made a difference in at a critical juncture. And then you talk, and I really want to underscore this, politics must connect to the people. And I want to speculate that this, that this bulk of the book and that section of the book, which also talks about um, uh, the Liberal Party platforms in Ukraine and Russia not speaking to, quote, the widows in the Rust Belt cities and the kind of arrogance and detachment of liberal parties. I want to speculate that that was written before Donald Trump, uh, before Brexit, before any of that. And I think it is remarkably prescient in terms of the broader canvas of democratic politics. So those are the five lessons. Now I want to add a sixth one and ask you to react to that. I think that you repeatedly talk about how damaging and corrosive corruption is. And um, I want to suggest that you know there are many other lessons one could draw from the book, but a recurrent one is that governance really matters. And if you've got feckless and corrupt governance with a weak rule of law, um, that is really corrosive to the prospects for democracy. So I wonder if you could expand on that and then talk about, because I'm not going to say any more to distill, 
some of the ways that the Bush administration uh, responded to that with really significant innovations like the Millennium Challenge account. Uh, absolutely. Well, thank you, Larry. And let me just say, uh, absolutely, subsequent presidents matter. Uh, I just want to say why I focused on first presidents. They sort of set the tone. Uh, the story that uh, Larry's telling about Nelson Mandela was that President Bush was meeting Nelson Mandela for the first time, and, and I said to him, you know, you've been at odds about Iraq, so why don't you start with AIDS, and you can talk about that. And, and much to my surprise, he sat down, and the first question he asked Nelson Mandela is, why didn't you run for another term? <laughs> and uh, Mandela said, well, because I wanted my African brethren to know it's all right to step down. And I was struck. George Washington, who Alexander Hamilton would have probably made king, uh, would hear nothing of it. And uh, that's why. And, and Yeltsin, on the other hand, as the first president, really ruled by decree, went around the parliament, weakening the parliament. And now, when it's Yeltsin in the presidency, that's one thing. But now Vladimir Putin with that presidency is quite another. So just to explicate on that for just a moment. Um, as to corruption, you're absolutely right. There's nothing more corrosive. Um, and we did try some innovations, including in the Millennium Challenge, which was a very big aid program, but it was premised not on, yes, you need aid, but you, if you are a country, a leadership that's trying to govern wisely, you're investing in your people, uh, you are uh, keeping laws from uh, disempowering women, you are governing democratically, uh, you're opening up your economy, and the first one, you're fighting corruption, then you are eligible for this aid. So there are actually indicators as to whether you were fighting corruption, and if you weren't, we're not going to even have a conversation with you about aid. And that was the difference in the Millennium Challenge. Uh, there are some other efforts out there. Um, we have uh, uh, former President uh, Ilves here, and in the Baltic states, um, E-governance is increasingly a way to be transparent about governance. Uh, I remember even uh, Salam Fayyad in the Palestinian Authority saying, I'm going to publish the budget for the first time. So that's a way. The Indians are experimenting with biometric data. Now why is that important? It's important because if you live out in a remote village, you've always had to get your benefits through the middleman. The middleman gets a cut. Now, without the middleman, you start to cut out some of the corruption. So there are some ways to approach this. But I just want to relate something that I've read through Frank's writings. It took the United States 100 years to actually end patronage in a significant way, to build a civil service that was not a patronage civil service. So even this takes time. Uh, but it is obviously one of those elements that you want to pay a lot of attention to. Frank, uh, so come I back to you, Larry. Yeah, I completely agree with Larry. That's a really fascinating book, and uh, I do think that that mixture of the personal and the historic was really great. It was a nostalgia trip for me. Uh, I um, particularly like the chapters, the opening chapters on Russia and um, you know the collapse of communism and in Ukraine and and other countries. Um, uh, I think that. It's really good for students that didn't live through that period to read that because it was such a miracle. <laughs> uh, it was so unexpected. And um, you know, for me, actually, it was quite nostalgic because I was actually on a couple of those trips you described. I was at that uh, Big Sky Summit with Shevardnadze and then the big trip that Bush took to uh, Gdansk in the summer of uh, 89. Uh, and 
I think you do a very good job of conveying what a political earthquake this was. You referred to Ross Johnson, and I remember him coming into my office and saying, you have no idea how fast you know, things are progressing. Uh, that, um, uh, and, and I remember dealing with the State Department bureaucracy at that time, even after the Polish round table and the announcement that the wall was coming down, they kept saying, well, but we still have to deal with the Warsaw Pact. I said, what? <laughs> you know? exactly. I mean, so anyhow, that, so that's a really terrific, uh, you know, uh, personal uh, account of that history. Uh, I guess what I wanted to ask you in retrospect, and since you are a Soviet uh, specialist, what American foreign policy, you know, what mistakes we made. Now, I do not want to rehearse that whole argument about NATO expansion, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, that's the main thrust of the critique, that if we hadn't gone to, you know, Thomas's country, that Putin would love us. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's just, there's no way of answering that counterfactual. But it does seem to me that, you know, there are some other big mistakes that we made in the, in the early, especially in the early years, in the early 1990s, in terms of economic policy and the kind of advice that we were giving Russia and whether that bore lessons for how we ought to approach, you know, similar kinds of developments in the future. Yeah. Well, Frank, you and I very well remember uh, that period, and, and uh, governments are actually sometimes slow to respond. My, my State Department story is that uh, you'll remember that amazing May Day March in 1990, and uh, it was a, usually, you know, the communist leadership uh, stood on top of the Lenin mausoleum, and they would review people coming by. And this time, because it was Gorbachev, it was, you know, glory to Perestroika and glory to Gorbachev, basically. And then uh, at the last minute, there were about 70 people carrying signs that said, communism is 70 years on the road to nowhere. Right? <laughs> now, this had not been Gorbachev's idea to have these people. And I remember that the embassy report was about who was standing next to whom on the Lenin mausoleum. <laughs> so no sense that things had changed dramatically. And I want to use that to say one word about something I hope we'll get to, which is the press. Um, I used to go to the Soviet Union a lot as a young Soviet specialist. And especially as the Gorbachev era was unfolding, I would first go to see the journalist. Uh, people like Phil Taubman, who is here at Stanford, or Felicity Beringer, Felicity Beringer or uh, Bill Keller, because they knew the place and could get out to places where American diplomats couldn't. And just a little bit of an advertisement, I hope that when uh, those decisions are being made in newsrooms these days that they're actually investing in people who can be out in these countries and know them. So that's just uh, something that I, I want to emphasize. Now, the interesting thing about what we tried to do, I think everybody was very excited after the wall fell, after the Soviet Union collapsed. It looked like Russia was re ready to take off. Um, if you look at a lot of the indicators or a lot of the variables that political scientists would say can give you a successful transition, a democratic transition. Russia had a lot of them. Population that was probably 99% literate. At least in economic terms that we could see, pretty good GDP, industrialized, right. lots of resources. And so the idea was all you really have to do is take off this communist cap and then you'll free all of that. And so it's not surprising then that the policy decisions were let's privatize all of those companies and they'll be ready to take off. 
I went once, and it's related in the book, I went once to the defense conversion had become a big deal because some of the best people, the best assets were all in the defense industries in the Soviet Union. So Bill Perry and David Holloway and I go and we, we are seeing the defense conversion effort. And the first thing they roll out, first of all, every plant manager has crossed out plant, man plant manager, it says CEO. <laughs> and then uh, they start rolling out their new products. Baby carriages made of titanium. <laughs> a, uh, a food processor that's about this big, made of some own unknown military material that they no longer had use for. My point is, it looked pretty easy, actually. You were just going to kind of unleash all of these forces. What the book tries to say is, we forgot that institutions matter. And what institutions hold is both a memory of what you've been through and a kind of anchoring of how you get to the future. My view now, and I really hadn't held this view until I wrote the book, it's, it's really kind of presaged in uh, Mike's excellent book about the, the Russian uh, post, the, the Yeltsin period. We undervalued what Gorbachev had, did, had done. We undervalued the degree to which the freeing of the political system, the freeing of the press, the beginnings of the emergence of civil society, even under the Soviet Union, might have left Russia with a better institutional infrastructure. And we kind of blew past all of that. We started privatizing. We started talking about democracy. It had to look like our parliament. And I think had we nurtured this as more of a transition. We tend to think of the transition as the Soviet Union collapses on December 25th, 1991, and then the transition begins. I think I could argue that the transition actually began in 1987, 1988, and we undervalued those institutions. Gorbachev once told me, I want the Soviet Union to be a normal country, he said. And what he meant by that was that he wanted it to be, a, he believed that Stalin and uh, and uh, force and the lies had all made it an abnormal place. And if you could free it from that, maybe it would find its way in European democracy. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should have tried to hold on to the Soviet Union. Thank goodness it collapsed. But some of the things that he did in that three, four year period might have been building blocks. And it goes, uh, Larry, to the point that you raised when I say work with what you've got. Sometimes we undervalue institutions that are already there. Another question, Frank, or Larry, or, or me? Uh, well, if we move on past the, um, you know, that early uh, phase of dizzy with success, uh, it seems to me that there were, in your second tour with the younger Bush, you know, there were some uh, lessons that I would like you to reflect on, uh, which really have to do with the limits of American power, and particularly the type of power that we deploy the most readily and have the most of, which is hard, you know, military power. Uh, you know, it struck me that the problem in a lot of parts of the world is actually not with democracy. Uh, we can actually sponsor elections, and you know, both Afghanistan and Iraq have had. <laughs> election-like events, if not real elections, but things that produce, you know, reasonably democratic uh, leaderships. 
the, the real thing we have problems with is state building. Mm -hmm. uh, and that gets to part of what Larry was saying, that you know, a modern state is one that is not horribly corrupt in which the elites are sharing, simply sharing rents. Uh, they can defend their own territory. They can actually use power effectively to enforce laws and so forth. And it seems to me that the experience, you know, the lesson I draw from both Iraq and Afghanistan is that for all of the money and, you know, uh, brain power, resources, and people that were invested, we still don't have an, you know, slightest idea how to do this. Uh, and um, that then is an important lesson for American foreign policy. And, and that's affected my view towards Syria because uh, given that we have really very limited tools with which to build an effective legitimate <coughs> state in situations where a dictator has been removed, uh, it does seem to me that you, know, you maybe should be a little bit more cautious about you know, taking that step. But I wonder if you draw similar kinds of conclusions. And, uh, and before you answer, can I pile on on this yeah. a, a little bit? Because uh, I snuck in a few of my students who are in the, class, in the back benches today. Uh, I'm teaching a course on American foreign policy right now, and we just did Afghanistan and Iraq yesterday. Um, I think this sentence will jump out at some of my students, so I just want to read it for you. And this may not be in the final version, this is in the penultimate <laughs> version. Uh, we overthrow vicious and dangerous dictators who threatened our security, not to bring democracy. And then further down, uh, uh, Professor Rice writes, uh, military power is not a good way to create a democratic opening. I've never believed that and never will. Yeah. I think those, those are going to jump out at people yeah. when they read that. So reflect on the moment right then. And, you know, in particular, I've wondered, as I've written about this, because uh, analytically, you know, I've also written, read Frank's book on Afghanistan and state building. Is there a choice if you go into a country and not try to yeah. build democracy? What, thinking about our own institutions, and, and, and just tell us a little bit about how it felt in real time as you thought about, one, the threat, and then two, what comes oh. afterwards. If, if there's one thing that I hope this book does is to allow people to separate democracy promotion from Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, uh, maybe Syria. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I would never have said to President Bush, we ought to overthrow Saddam Hussein so that Iraq can be democratic. I would never have said to him, we ought to overthrow the Taliban so that Afghanistan can be democratic. We thought, we knew we had a security problem in Afghanistan. They had a safe haven for Al-Qaeda. We overthrew the Taliban to prevent the next 9-11. We believed we had an imminent security threat in Iraq. It turns out the intelligence was not accurate and it was not the imminent threat that we did. But that was the reason for Iraq. I'm going to leave aside Libya, which looks to me to have been more of a humanitarian intervention. Now, if you decide you want to do something in Syria, you know, it's because of a security threat. But let me just speak to the two that I was involved in, Iraq and Afghanistan. So the purpose here was to deal with a security threat. And you deal with a security threat through military force. We didn't go and defeat Hitler to bring democracy to Germany. We defeated Hitler with our military power. We didn't go to defeat Imperial Japan so that we could bring democracy to Japan. We defeated them because of the security threat. So security threats now defeated. And I don't think anybody had much doubt that we would be able to defeat Saddam Hussein, right? Or the Taliban for that matter. But now your question, now what do you do? 
because you now are responsible for the future of this country. And we actually had a debate in the Bush administration as to whether or not it should be our goal to try and leave a democratic Iraq or an Iraq that was on the pathway to democracy, or whether we should just find some general who was not accused of war crimes and let him run the country. And in a very long series of discussions, and some people saw this differently, Don Rumsfeld saw it differently, uh, we decided that we believed that we'd done enough of the find a dictator and put him in power in the Middle East, and that that was a lot of the reason the Middle East was the way that it was. And so helping the Iraqis to find a decent democratic pathway made sense. And by the way, if Shia and Sunni and Kurds were ever going to live in one body, it couldn't be because somebody oppressed somebody else. It had to be because they all bought into some institutional structure. That's how the decision to try to bring democracy came about. Now, Iraq or Afghanistan or Libya or Kim Jong-un in, in, in North Korea are the most stressing cases because totalitarian systems, and I talk about different mm -hmm, systems, right. totalitarian systems don't have essentially any institutions underneath. They've got a cult of personality at the head. Every institution is in the service of the, the state. Uh, that's where totalitarian comes from, which was Mussolini's phrase. So for instance, in Stalin's Russia, Stalin's Soviet Union, Prokofiev and, and Shostakovich are persecuted for not writing music that's socialist enough. Right? That's how, how can you tell if music's socialist? Right? That's how much in totalitarian societies... It sounds bad. It's, yeah. Well, in, his, in, this case, in, in this case, it didn't sound like the good folk people of Russia. All right? So a totalitarian case is the most stressing. And it's sad that usually a totalitarian case also it presents itself when the totalitarian has been overthrown by some external power. Most cases of democracy promotion don't look like that. They look more like Colombia, a country that has uh, some democratic institutions, has had elections that turn over government, but can't control now 30% of its uh, territory because of the insurgency. Uh, the, uh, the courts have lost all uh, credibility because they've been turned over. Basically, people believe the AUC gets off and the FARC is fighting. and. So that's democracy promotion. Liberia, uh, a crazy, uh, you know, Charles Taylor warlord who has child soldiers, including a little boy who shows up on the front pages of the New York Times with a teddy bear backpack and an AK-47 in his hand. Democracy promotion is going in and helping Liberia solve that problem. Democracy promotion is when the Soviet Union collapses and you're left with a Poland or an Estonia that have actually pretty sound senses of identity, you know, but they need help in taking the next station. So I understand why when I say, particularly me, when I say democracy promotion, people say, how can you say that given the way Iraq has turned out? Now, by the way, I'm going to say, I don't think Iraq has yet turned out. This takes a long time. Um, and at least when you need to get rid of a strong man like Maliki, he steps down. Arab strong men don't step down. But democracy pro promotion really usually doesn't and shouldn't start with military action. Larry. Um, 
Well, this is probably going to be the last question I'll ask because we need to get to the audience soon. So I do want to preface it uh, by two words of gratitude. First of all, thank you for launching this book here at Stanford and at Hoover and FSI jointly in this room. And second of all, to return to my earlier point, I do want to acknowledge what a remarkable thing it has been for the last eight years to have two former secretaries of state widely internationally admired sitting in that building over there. And I think sometimes we lose sight of what an extraordinary thing that has been for Stanford University and, and for Hoover. So, and and um, I, might add, I might add Secretary of Defense. Uh, and Bill Perry Bill right Perry upstairs. And, and our friend Steve Truth. So we've got a lot of cabinet officers should they be needed again. Um, <laughs> I, um, Just kidding. <laughs> past, present, and future, who knows? But uh, to come back to the Middle East, there is a very long, uh, deep, and at times personal chapter on the Middle East in this book. And I think there's an, there's, there are many other observations that might strike people from that, that chapter. And one of them, which I strongly agree with, is the Arab Spring is not over, friends. Uh, and we've got Abbas Milani in the room here, so I'll highlight this point, too. Don't write off Iran. So I agree with you. I just was talking with Baram Sali yesterday, yeah. who you know well. Uh, and he was making the very point you're making. Iraq is, is a story that is unfolding and will be unfolding for many years and possibly decades. And oh, by the way, if you're looking at the Middle East, well, you, as you know, we do have one democracy there now, Tunisia. And at least political pluralism of sorts in Iraq and in Lebanon in different ways. Huh? Israel. Israel is a democracy. Well, the Arab yes, of course. Yeah. In the Muslim Middle East. Uh, no, of course there is uh, the extraordinary exception that Israel has been. But so can you elaborate on those parts of the Middle East, on the Arab world and Iran and Turkey, if you wish, and you know why you say that we shouldn't write off the democratic yeah. prospects in parts of the world where I think many Americans are now prepared to just wash their hands of right. democratic prospects? Well, I'll make three points uh, quickly. The first is that we tend to talk about the Middle East. But in fact, there's great variability across the Middle East in the raw material that you can work with. And one of the things that I try to emphasize in the book is when you go in, see what the raw material looks like. And by the way, one of the purposes of democracy promotion ought to try to be to improve the raw material so that at some point, and by that I mean institutions, civil society, the press, independent courts, et cetera. Now, in the Middle East, it ranges from the totalitarians that we've recently seen uh, overthrown uh, all the way out to a, a young democracy like Tunisia, a pluralistic society like Iraq. There's a lot in between. There's uh, Egypt, which uh, has gone backwards, but which, of course, still has an active civil society underground these days, which has a business community uh, keeping its head low these days, but still there. Uh, you have in the monarchies a lot of variation uh, where they seem to be believing that you might be able to even substitute economic rights and women's empowerment through education for political rights. We'll see. That's an interesting attempt. So the Middle East is much more variable than the disaster in Syria, and that's the first point. The second point is, um, yes, uh, we could wash our hands of it. We could say we are uh, no longer dependent for oil because we're going to develop the North American platform and we can just, it will come home to us. 
uh, it did on 9-11. Uh, it will continue to in the form of the ISISs that come up and then uh, bring us the San Bernardinos or the Orlandos, and so we ignore it at our own peril. Then the third and most important point. We might wish for the old days of stability, but meaning, you know, autocrats and, and um, totalitarian leaders who suppress their people and kind of keep a lid on it. But there's a reason that lid blew off. Uh, you can only do that so long before people won't tolerate it any longer. Uh, today, when what happens in the village doesn't stay in the village, so somebody self-immolates in Tunisia and it sets off a revolution in Egypt. If you think for one minute that these people who are living with corrupt, dynastic, authoritarian governments that don't deliver aren't going to eventually find a way, the Iranian population, and I'm glad Abbas is here because he's done some of the best work on this, the Iranian population, 70% uh, of them under the age of 30, outward looking, one of these days that regime is going to find that they aren't able to keep a lid on this. And so when we say one of two things, we'll ignore them and let them keep a lid on it. It's the most short-sighted policy that you can have. So in the short term and in the medium term, I would hope we take an attitude, no, we aren't going to be able to do it for them. But we are going to support voices who want to see a different Middle East. We are going to engage them. We are going to have students in the Graduate School of Business at Stanford who come from those places. We are going to support civil society. Uh, because ultimately, these are not stable regimes. Authoritarianism is not stable for one reason. Authoritarians know that their people have no peaceful way to change government. And therefore, they're fearful of their own people. And so they oppress, and it's a cycle of oppression and re re revolt, repression and revolt. We should be hoping for reform in the Middle East, particularly among our allies. One could say that the problem with Egypt and what we faced when people were in the square against Mubarak is that Mubarak, had he reformed and he started to do so in 2005, we might not have faced that dilemma. But I've heard people say, particularly some of my friends in the Middle East, why did America support, pull its support from Mubarak? His people are in the streets saying, you have to go, and President Obama's supposed to say, oh, no, actually, you, you stay. No. The work to be done was to be done before they got to that moment, and I, that's how I think of democracy promotion. That's why the book is so good. <laughs> and if I could just add, Frank, you're going to get the last question. Uh, first of all, uh, remember the 80s, there were some great cases of that. Yeah. Uh, the Philippines, South Korea, uh, and Chile, and you can read about them in Triumph and Turmoil. Uh, yes. In George Schultz's memoirs, yes. as I did, as we talked yeah. about how to deal with the Middle East in real yeah. time in 2011. Yeah. Uh, there are lessons learned. Uh, that can help uh, policymakers. But I want to ask one last big question, then Frank gets the last question. And then we're going to turn to the, everybody here. Uh, and again, I just want to quote this, this great uh, phrase. Uh, you're in, it uh, looks like you're in Germany, you're in Berlin, 2004 National Security Advisor, meeting with your counterparts, talking about tradition of democracy in either Iraq and Afghanistan. And you ask, this sounds like you, what precisely was the German democratic tradition before 1945? And that, in some ways, that question, we, you've been talking about institutions and in that, that part of it, but before institutions or, or to the side or however you want to conceptualize it as culture. 
and uh, most certainly in the Middle East, but not only in the Middle East, in Russia, Ukraine, uh, lots of places, this cultural variable comes up as an impediment to democracy. Tell us about, you know, since then, how you think about yeah. culture uh, either as help facilitating or impeding democratic yeah. change. Well, uh, first of all, I believe that when political scientists have no uh, explanation, uh, their residual explanation is culture. <laughs> uh, so if you can't explain it, it must be culture. Uh -huh. And I. How do I think about culture? So culture is not something that you know you just kind of covered in. It's a sum total of experiences, shared experiences from the past. Uh, it might be experiences that were difficult. It might be experiences that were triumphant. Uh, it might be a particular way of looking at the world because of those experiences. But I think it's less mysterious than this thing that just kind of covers people. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also fundamentally believe that um, culture is not, therefore, an explanation for why some people can be democratic and why some can't. We have been through more cultural explanations for why democracy can't take hold in certain places. So for a while, uh, the Asians were all too Confucian and they had these values. But of course now, you know, there's South Korea and there's Taiwan and there's Japan. Okay, so then the Latin Americans, well, they just like cadillos, uh, men on horseback. So when I first taught civil military relations at Stanford, which Mike reminded me was a long, long time ago in the early 80s when Stanford hired me at the age of 11, um, that uh, we used to, I used to teach civil military relations, and I always had at least one military coup to talk about in Latin America. Now it's Chile and Colombia and Brazil, et cetera. We had the Africans are too tribal. But now you look at even unfinished democracies like, uh, like a, a, a Ghana or a, uh, you know, or a Botswana or uh, even a South Africa, which struggles but is democratic. Uh, and it reminds me, oh, by the way, the Germans were too martial, right? They just obeyed orders, right. uh, which I used to remind them when they used to say how the Iraqis didn't have culture for this uh, because I can't stand that explanation from the Europeans. Well, those people aren't ready. And I would say, well, thank God nobody gave up on you in 1943. Right? So it's, it's a kind of, because it, it's patronizing. You know, there are these people in the world who just can't get it right like we did. And so finally, I would say to people, and oh, by the way, in America, blacks were once too childlike, uh, slaves, Negroes, coloreds were too childlike to care about vote. So when are we going to stop this stuff about there are just some people who can't get it right and recognize that it's a complex story of what they've been through, what their hopes and aspirations, the various kinds of challenges they face, and what kinds of institutions can mitigate these, quote, cultural uh, issues within any given place? Frank, last word, well, I just, last question. I just feel if I don't ask this question, somebody in the audience is going to. Uh, so you've been working on this book for quite a number of years, and we had a rather large political earthquake in 2016. We have a president that has picked fights with Australia, Canada, Germany, South Korea, and has seemed to have nothing but praise for Duterte in the Philippines, the most recent one, Sisi in Egypt, of course, Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, uh, Erdogan, an increasingly long list. Um, so I want to know, why are you not in a blind panic about <laughs> the state of American foreign policy as I am or I suspect Larry is? Um. 
Well, first of all, because I've, I've seen movies before about, uh, how, about American foreign policy and, and how we should all be panicked. Let me say, I did add a little section at the end called 2016, and it was less about specifically our circumstances than the kind of populist challenge, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, populism, isolationism, nativism, protectionism, uh, which didn't work out so well the last time around, and so there is a little section. Look, I think that the story of where this administration will end up is still unfolding. Um, I will say it's a really good foreign policy team. Um, I think they are strong. I think that in the early days of any administration, the White House is kind of first on and you get kind of uh, very great chaotic policies and then the agencies come in and they, and I do hope they get staffed up and they get staffed up and they're, they're different. Uh, the president comes to this job uh, having never served in government, never, having never sniffed government before. And um, I think that you're seeing uh, somebody who sort of says perhaps what's on top of mind and sometimes uh, says it in a way that we find jarring. So yes, I found jarring the comment about Duterte because after all, you know, he said nothing good about the United States, he's trying to expropriate. I suspect that when you talk about meeting him or so forth, you're trying to say, look, I can talk with and negotiate with anybody. One of the things I think you eventually learn as president is that one thing that's different than being on the outside is interest are not, sometimes you can't cut a deal around interest. Sometimes you just have conflicting interests. And I think this will, this will emerge and, uh, and he, will, he will see that. I never thought the Putin thing was gonna last. Because uh, my view was, you know, once it was clear there was only one alpha male in international politics, uh, that bromance wasn't going to go very far. <laughs> and uh, I think that uh, Putin um, is who he is, um, and it's coming clear in the way that he's behaving. But, you know, let's give it a chance. Uh, you know where I stand. I believe strongly in an active America in the international system because this is a system that after World War II, we and our allies built on the proposition that free markets, uh, free economies, free peoples, free politics, uh, and uh, American military power to protect it all would not just protect them and their interest, it would protect us and our interest. And I fundamentally believe that. I don't believe that you can do that long run if you don't also represent the values of this country. Because I'll say one other thing about democracies. Uh, we all understand, or people understand, the moral case. When you see somebody willing to be jailed or persecuted or even killed, uh, and we've seen them throughout history, you can't help but be moved by the fact that people who just want to have the basic rights that you have need to be supported. That's the moral case. But there's also a very practical case about democracy. Uh, we know that consolidated democracies don't fight one another, democratic peace. And in fact, the allies, the Americans and the allies, took a big gamble after World War II on the democratic peace, that if Germany would be democratic under Konrad Adenauer and his successors, and Japan would be democratic, constitutional democracy, but democratic, they wouldn't threaten the neighborhood again. Not only do they not threaten the neighborhood, they are two of the rocks mm -hmm. of the international system. And democracies don't send child soldiers into battle. And democracies don't, as a matter of state policy, traffic in human beings. 
And democracy is known as a matter of state policy support, uh, state-sponsored terrorist. And so we have uh, both a moral and a practical case for wanting to see both our values and our interests represented in the international system. And I would argue that in the long run, a balance of power that favors freedom is actually in America's interest. Great. So we have some time for questions from the audience. Uh, my only request is that once you get the microphone, if you could introduce yourself and then ask a question. Right here, Anya. Hello, my name is Anya Krko, uh, and thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, about uh, recently China has become a great superpower and what they do, they just go into different countries, like developing countries in Africa, Eastern Europe, uh, pour huge amounts of money, bring their workers, bring their system, uh, like uh, their values. Uh, and like I wouldn't say promoting democracy Chinese way, but promoting Chinese culture yes. uh, through the investments. How would you compare this to American way and like what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, thank you. I, I think that until, a, first of all, China is a uh, great power and it's a rising power and it's going to be influential in the international system, full stop. And one of the challenges is to figure how to channel Chinese influence in ways that are actually not disruptive to the international system. We've got something going for us in that China is about as integrated into the international economy as you can be. Nobody can imagine Chinese economic growth without international economic growth and vice versa. So we've, we've got something going for us that, by the way, we don't have going for us with Russia, which is not as integrated into the international economy. China, I would have said five, seven, ten years ago, was essentially engaged in a mercantilist foreign policy. So what was good for the Chinese economy was good for Chinese foreign policy. And it showed up in, uh, for instance, the desire for commodities, and so you go to where there are commodities producers and you develop relationships there and you get trade relationships and trade benefits. Uh, you do things like, uh, since Africa has a lot of commodities, you build the African Union building in Addis uh, because that impresses us. But it was all somehow tied to uh, the Chinese economy. I think we're seeing an evolution. The immediate place that we are is I think it actually looks more like China is trying to reconstitute what it lost out of colonialism. So it's all about the region. It's about the South China Sea. It's about, the, uh, about uh, Taiwan and the Straits. It's about Hong Kong, which has been brought back. Uh, I don't mean to make an exact parallel, but it, it's interesting. When people say the United States was so isolationist in the 19th century, I say if the United States was isolationist, how'd it get to be so big? No, the United States was actually consolidating the continent in the 19th century, both east and west and north and south, and fought some wars to be able to do that. I think what you're seeing is China's attempt to consolidate its, its neighborhood, but it's bumping up against us, as it well should, because sometimes the consolidation of your neighborhood means running over the interests and territories of other people. Now, will that eventually become a China that looks more like a great power with a view of how human history ought to unfold. The United States after World War II had a view of how human history ought to unfold. 
free markets, free peoples. It was not always perfectly executed. We made some exceptions like the Middle East, but that was basically the view. The Soviet Union had a view of how the international system ought to unfold. And the way that you know that countries, that great powers have a view, is they try to replicate themselves in the <clears throat> international system. I don't yet see China as having a view. Uh, they have a model uh, that some are attracted to, but good luck if you are Orban trying to do what China has done with a billion four people and r the resources that they have and the ability to organize that they have. So I'm not sure it's a model that translates very easily. Um, I think Putin is much more trying to be that model for the authoritarian strongman. So I think the Chinese are not quite yet there where they have a Chinese way. What they have is a way to serve Chinese interests. It could evolve in that way, but I don't see it yet. I saw Neil next, right over here. Neil Ferguson, Hoover Institution, uh, Secretary Rice. Uh, it's a terrific and really important book. I read it at a, at a very early stage. Um, and I actually want to talk about something that hasn't been mentioned in the discussion that seemed a really important theme in that early draft, and that's the notion of a global thermidor, a, a global shift away from uh, democracy. One problem about writing books is that they go to press and then months pass. Uh, and I want you to talk about things that have happened since you went to press and how far events in the recent past bear out that thesis that democracy is in some kind of global crisis. Uh, are there really strong men to the left of us, strong men to the right of us? Is this a crisis of democracy or is it a crisis of liberal democracy? In other words, are we going to carry on seeing elections, but will these elections be uh, phony elections that simply legitimize the rule of strong men? So yeah. talk a bit about yeah. these recent trends. By the way, before yeah. you do, why yeah. in the 21st century is there such a lag time between when you finish a book when it's printed? <laughs> well, it was a lot shorter would, in yeah. this case. Yeah, it was pretty short. It was actually pretty short. All right. uh, first of all, thank you, Neil, because you did read it in early manuscript. And uh, as by the way, I just have to thank a bunch of my colleagues in this room who either read parts or gave me ideas or whatever. It's it's really it's one of the great thing about, things about colleagueship uh, in a place like this. Look, I actually think, and and Larry and I have had this conversation. Uh, Larry has written that democracy is in research. And, and I wrote a, an essay for a volume that Larry did on this. I think we may be reacting to the fact that uh, we're not getting what we had all hoped, which was the sprint toward more and more democracies. But rather, we're getting some that are, seem to be just kind of crawling along. We're getting some that might even be reverting a bit, like the, the Hungries or the Turkeys of the world, maybe the Poland, which we worry about. Uh, but I think if you still look at where we are today versus where we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago, if you don't look through the rose-colored glasses of where we might have been in 20 years, democracy is doing okay. Now, that doesn't mean, and by democracy, I don't mean just elections. I mean people that actually are improving rule of law, people who are actually working uh, so that uh, institutions like uh, independent judiciaries actually work, uh, people like the Colombians who are taking back territory, people like the Argentines who are reinvigorating their uh, democracy after a period of kind of quasi-authoritarianism under the Kirchners. Uh, I think it's a mixed picture, but I would say that if you do the puts and takes, it's still a little bit ahead. It's just not as far ahead as we once thought. Now, what are the two challenges, or as we had hoped it would be? Now, what are the two big challenges to that? 
three big challenges. One is the Middle East, where the kind of institutional infrastructure is still not very strong for the emergence of democracies. And if you are a democracy, uh, Israel, Tunisia, maybe an emerging Iraq, the neighborhood's not great from this point of view. So that's a challenge. A second challenge, I think, is that uh, even mature democracies are having trouble with governance. They're having trouble getting things done. Uh, but if you look at the American system, federalism is helping us a lot because while Washington remains uh, in deadlock, the states are doing all kinds of things. So one question is, what can you do to devolve power in places where you're getting granted? The other big, big challenge is uh, the one I addressed in 2016. Um, I, yeah, illiberal democracy, or I don't actually even like associating with world demo word democracy. What you have is illiberal institutions or illiberal constituencies that are keeping in power strong men because they no longer have to take tanks into the streets. So Putin doesn't have to take tanks in the streets. He's got a constituency out there in the countryside and pensioners and the like. Erdogan doesn't have to, he did at one point, but he doesn't have to take tanks in the streets because he's got pious people that were left out of the uh, period under Kamalism and they support him. So it's not as if they don't have some basis of support, they do. That's a threat. I'm even more concerned though about, as I called it, Populism, you know, nativism, isolationism, protectionism, the four horses of the apocalypse. Because democracy won't progress if it is, if people who are working for it are isolated from a global order that believes in them. And that I think has taken a little bit of a turn for the worse since um, I put the last period on this book and that's why I wrote the little 2016. It's taken uh, a little bit of a turn for the worse because um, terrorism um, is a, an easy way to, uh, the response to terrorism, you can take the easy way out, which is to say uh, it's the fault of those people and we're gonna close ourselves off. Or you can do the hard work of fighting it, but that's a lot less satisfying. And so you're seeing people in all kinds of democracies now who don't believe that their governments represent their fears or their aspirations. And I don't know quite how, quite how that turns out for even mature democracies. Uh, President Ilvis, I saw next. And you're the, I saw you actually before President Ilvis. I, so can we get the microphone there and then up to and Tom? Tom yeah. no, 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 you're, you're up, I, I, Tom. I, Thomas, you're up. Yeah. Um, Two things. One brief thing, just uh, you know, foreign policy is not just an academic activity. And I wanted to say that 10 years ago and one week ago, my country was under threat. And a lot of people didn't, you know, they were saying, OK, so let's see what happens. But uh, Condi, you called me up right when it was really bad. So thank you. Uh, now more academically, uh, <laughs> I mean, again, as uh, this kind of patronizing Orientalism that many of uh, Easter, not only sort of Africans have had and Confucianists, but also East Europeans, uh, is something I agree. It has, you have to get rid of it. On the other hand, there is, you know, if you look at Robert Putnam's stuff on uh, sort of where democracy flourished in Italy, uh, there is a long historical development. So that you know, if you 700 years ago, it was one of the most depressing things to read. But if 700 years ago you had a civil society in Florence, 
then it's not bad in northern Italy. Whereas if you have a feudal society up until recent times and maybe even continuing in southern Italy, then it's really bad. Um, and you could say that in many ways, what differ, where Russia differs from most of Eastern Europe, at least the sort of northern half of it, is that there was in the 19th century already a civil society, even under well, sort of you know, monarchical imperial rule, but there was that already there. How much do you see civil society as a key factor? And if, if it is there, then maybe we should sort of expand our time frame for the, for the sort of, we, we shouldn't wait for democracy to happen overnight unless the seeds have been there for a while. Yeah. Thank you. Now, look, civil society is absolutely key. And absolutely, if you have a, a vibrant civil society, you've got a head start. Um, I write about the Kenyan case because I was involved trying to help Kofi Annan bring about a uh, unity government after the election of 2007 uh, ended almost ended so violently. The, probably the greatest asset there was civil society was actually stronger in Kenya than you might have imagined. So there are places that dot the globe that have strong civil societies for whatever reason. And uh, they are a real, a real asset when you're trying to build democracy. I will say that with all due respect to my colleague Bob Putnam, who wrote a, wrote a great book on this, things have sped up a bit since <laughs> 700 years ago. And um, one of the goals of foreign policy has to be not to speed up our clock about when democracy is going to take hold, because that we can't control, but to speed up the process of creating that infrastructure like civil society. So something you would remember well, uh, Thomas, the, the much at the time maligned uh, CSCE, Council of Cooperation and Security in Europe. Uh, the CSCE actually uh, was a place that human rights groups throughout Eastern Europe and even through in the Soviet Union, because of the so-called human rights basket, which the Soviets signed on to because they really wanted the economic and political basket, and they believed it was going to uh, legitimize their rule in Europe. What it did was give voice and protection to those civil society groups which emerged after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So you can get about the build business of helping these civil societies uh, build, and it's absolutely critical. Uh, what Every year uh, we bring the Draper Fellows here, and they are the most amazing young activists from around the world who are trying to do even the smallest work, women's empowerment work, or uh, election monitoring, or uh, trying to build a little business, and support those people. You know, one of them might actually turn out to be Lekboenza. One of them might actually turn out to be Nelson Mandela. And so that's another piece. Three of them are serving in the Ukrainian parliament yeah, now. exactly. So this is an important one. I'll make the final point. We forget how fast sometimes things do happen. So in 19, uh, I, I remember speaking, or it was either, I, I think it was a hearing, but it might have been a briefing before Senate Foreign Relations, and some, we had just helped the Afghans finish their constitution. And the Afghan constitution starts out with a preamble that says, we will abide by Sharia law and individual rights. And the senator said, what a terrible compromise. What a horrible compromise. How could you have signed under that? He said, well, you know, it's not half as bad as the compromise that made my ancestors three-fifths of a man in the first American <laughs> Constitution, right? And by the way, that same Constitution 
had to finally actually make 13, 14, and 15th Amendments matter with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of, of 64 and 65. I was a child, so you know, not that long ago. Well, maybe a long time ago, not that long ago. And oh, by the way, that same constitution is the one that I took an oath of office to as Secretary of State in 2005. So things can change. And my only challenge to those who would say it, and I've said it, it takes a long time, is don't make that an excuse for not getting started. Great. Here in the back, yeah. I'm wondering if it's possible you just answered this, but I'm wondering in unconsolidated African democracies, so places like Liberia and Nigeria, what you see to be the most effective tools that the U.S. has to support democratic yeah. institutions? Uh, I would give a different answer to the two uh, cases. And, and uh, one of the things that I try to say in this book is, you know, no one size fits all. So if you're Secretary of State, you can't have a kind of cookie cutter approach to all of them. Uh, I look at a Nigeria and I see some positive signs. So for instance, you know, sometimes it's small things. So good luck Jonathan actually calls his success, his, the person who's defeated him and says, you're now the president, I concede, good luck. First time in Nigerian First history. First time in Niger Nigerian history. We just sort of passed that office. Oh, well, of course. Well, you couldn't take that for granted since Nigerian independence. So I see things beginning to happen. I think Larry, who really knows Nigeria way better than I, would tell you that some things are starting to happen on the corruption front. You're starting to get some people coming back from having worked in places like the World Bank. And by the way, one thing that we sometimes undervalue is how people in developing countries go and work in institutions like the IMF or the World Bank or even the UN, and they go back and they are able to carry those, uh, those processes and those values to their countries. If you look at Liberia, uh, I actually think you've just got a really good government to work with there that's trying to do the right things. Uh, it's extremely hard, 20 plus, 25 years of civil war. Uh, they finally sort of get, make the transition and then Ebola happens. Uh, but they are a Millennium Challenge country and one of the things that the Millennium Challenge tries to do is to say, let's not, let's not talk about how you're going to arrange your parliament or how, many, how often you're going to have presidential elections, speaking to the point about uh, you know, just not elections. But what's your biggest kind of political economic problem? And some of these places it'll be the power grid is unreliable. Or uh, you don't have land titling so you can't, uh, can't combine all these inefficient subsistence farms so you can't deliver food to the population. Now the most remarkable thing though then is you get to do two things with those countries. One is something that the Jordanians told me when they were in MCC country. For the first time they had to call together all the stakeholders and have a conversation about what they were actually going to apply for in their compact with the United States. So it's a kind of democratic process that takes place and you don't get to just, the government doesn't say here's what the farmers need, the farmers actually get asked. In uh, Lesotho, uh, it was an effort to do some business, uh, to allow some uh, business support capital. But Lesotho had a, uh, on the books that women couldn't own property in their own name. Well, what happened to that? The United States said, uh, not going to happen. They changed the law. 
So I wouldn't underestimate, we, we tend to talk, because we're political scientists, we tend to talk about the big political changes. You have to write a constitution, you have to guarantee these kinds of rights, you have to deal with ethnic issues, you have to protect ethnic minorities. That's all very important. But I was struck, and I titled the chapter this, I'm struck how America's founding document actually says the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Pursuit of happiness, really? Well, the pursuit of fulfillment is perhaps a better phrase. And sometimes governments have to create the conditions where people can pursue fulfillment or they don't last very long. We have a conceit that democracies are bad at this and authoritarians are good at it. Uh, the Chinese have been pretty good at it. Give them credit what they've achieved. Singapore was pretty good at it. Give Lee Kuan Yew credit for what he achieved. But now your examples are one of the smallest countries in the world that happened to get a really wise man, and one of the biggest countries in the world that has going for it a population where uh, prosperity uh, is, is actually providing legitimacy. There are plenty of bad authoritarian rules, rulers. Uh, you know, just talk to the people in Caracas today. So uh, we should not buy into that. Yeah, democracies are slower. They're less efficient. You've got all these veto groups. But you know something about democracies? You might not get things done very fast. You're less likely to make a really big mistake, like the one-child policy in China. Because one thing authoritarians can do is they can make it happen. And that's good. But if you're going to be omnipotent, you better be omniscient too. So I think we don't speak enough for democracies and trying to help them to deliver the pursuit of happiness. Tom, and then I over here. Condi, I want to get you to reflect a little bit on Af Afghanistan in the context of uh, what we've been talking about today yeah. and uh, get you to reflect a little bit uh, as to where, where, where we might have done things differently. I mean, it was very clear that we went into Afghanistan to take out the launching pad uh, from the attacks, uh, from which the 9-11 attack was yes. perpetrated. Yeah. Um, but as we've gone on, we're now fi almost 15, 16 years uh, into trying to fix Afghanistan. Cynics or critics would say there's been incredible mission creep. But I really like, uh, you know, whether it's women's rights, whether it's wiping out the drugs, uh, whether it's dealing with the corruption, whether it's dealing with the absence of in infrastructure within the company, never mind uh, the, the complications of the politics. But uh, what are the lessons learned or what, uh, on reflection, what uh, would you do differently today when we went in there and uh, maybe what should we be doing uh, today? Well, Afghanistan is very hard. It, um, Tom, I don't have to tell you, you've seen it. Uh, it was always going to be hard, okay, because it was at the time of 9-11, it was the fifth poorest country in the world. It had experienced uh, 25 years of civil war. Um, it was basically still in civil war with the uh, Northern Alliance with maybe 10% of the territory in the North and the Taliban holding the other 90%. But um, you know, just a very difficult place. And I remember flying into Afghanistan the first time, flying over the high mountains and thinking these people were bequeathed high mountains and dirt. You know, it's really very tough. So um, what's the good news? The good news is that the Taliban no longer executes people in a soccer stadium that was given to them by the UN. 
The good news is that girls go to school. Um, I think something like 40% of the women, 40% uh, of the students in, in uh, university are women. Um, the good news is that um, in a very patriarchal, and this is a point to Thomas's point, you know, this is a very patriarchal society, um, but even in that very patriarchal society, uh, you are seeing um, women challenge uh, clerics that uh, abuse them and sexually assault them and do it in court, and in some cases they're winning. So some things are progressing. Uh, on the other hand, the security situation remains very, very tough. And I've always thought that my marker was, could you prevent the Taliban from being an existential threat to Kabul? Um, and you get some cases where you wonder if they're getting closer to Kabul, not further from Kabul. And so I'm, I'm worried about it. But I will say that um, starting with President Obama and now I think continuing with President Trump, you're, you're seeing a pretty active American effort to try and beat back any advances that the Taliban might make. The Afghan forces are by most accounts getting better although we've been saying that for a long time. And the big issue that Afghanistan also has is it sits on the border with Pakistan. And with that big northwest frontier, uh, people coming in and out, back and forth, it's really hard to do something about the security situation, particularly in the south, given the Pakistan's, uh, Pakistan. So, uh, the formula is not unlike it was by about 2003. You've got to do something about uh, Pakistan, and and it's still um, uncertainty about how it feels about a stable Afghanistan. I've read reports that the Russians are now sending some armament to the Taliban. Uh, that ought to be a conversation with Mr. Putin about you really want back into Afghanistan? Really? After what you experienced there? Really? And maybe that ought to be published in the Russian papers where there's still too many mothers of dead Russian soldiers, Soviet soldiers, who might just remember that. Um, and then um, you've got to do something, you know, to continue to try to improve governance. Uh, but it's just, it's a very hard place. I think we're finally going to eventually have to get to a question of what is at least for the time being good enough in Afghanistan. And I don't mean on the governance side. I really mean in terms of the war itself. Um, I'm not inside the, the, the information to know what we now think about the possibility of hiving off some of the Taliban for something that looks like a peace agreement uh, while making sure that those who still engage in terrorist activities are. I don't know whether a Northern Ireland agreement is possible in Afghanistan. But uh, if I were in the administration, I'd be asking the question. So we're running out of time. I have, you have a here, and George, did you want to get on this? No. Then uh, this will be the last question. I apologize. I'm honored. My name is Yevi Ilves. I'm a partner of President Ilves, but I also have been many years working, all my life working for government of Latvia, and including doing some sort of democracy projects, if one can call them, like Belarus, Georgia, Azerbaijan. and. Um, I'm really honored for this discussion. It was very close to my heart. And, uh, but I want to ask a question about the future. And you referred a lot about uh, keeping to project democracies, promote them, and um, keep doing this work and help supporting even uh, a few individuals. Uh, but I want to raise a question back to US uh, in the given current situation. How do you see it? And uh, I'm here a little bit concerned, because as I worked as a European uh, 
Union diplomat, for example, in Azerbaijan already a few years, years ago, I got this question throwing back saying, look at Italy, look at Berlusconi, look at others, how you are doing yourself. And I quite well imagine currently this situation that uh, the questions will be thrown back, how the things happened in US, how the US leadership and the country is run, where are the line between your business, your corruption, where is the state, where is your private, how the media is treated. I mean, all these, uh, these questions, they come immediately on, on surface and are noticed. And no doubt that the US leadership is extremely important for, to keep promote democracy. So, I, I wonder what's, what's your take on that, and uh, given that U.S. is in such a state, and then we look at Europe, who is very much busy with, with its own problems, or L London being busy with Brexit yeah. and others, so I'm, I am a little bit concerned where we are moving with democracy promotions. I might agree that we are not that bad right now with democracies, maybe we are doing okay, as you mentioned, but I am concerned uh, with the current leadership in, in democratic countries, where we'll be heading to, because that's extremely important point of reference for those, especially for those countries who are kind of neither very democratic or not totalitarian, but yeah. still need the support. We're still searching, yes. Okay. No, it's question, a, it's yeah, a really no. good question. Um, there, there's a moment in the book where I quoted a judge from the time in the South when South Carolina had done, had had a case um, on voting rights that turned out from his point of view the wrong way. And he said uh, uh, that he worried about how what happens in America uh, affects our ability to speak in the world. And, and so, yes, I think this is true. But I would say to people the following. Um, first of all, all right, so we've had a little bit of an unusual election in the United States. We've elected a president who'd never had any experience, first time in our history. But, you know, people actually who were dissatisfied and believed they had been left out, uh, my friends call it the do you hear me now people, found themselves a candidate, went to the polls, and elected him. Right? And like so democracy. it calls, it, I think that's democracy. And for those who might have wished a different outcome, well, you know, that's the way democracy democracy works. So that would be the first thing I would say. Uh, secondly, I would say we shouldn't yet have a, a no, we don't yet know where I think the administration's ultimately going to come down on the question of the role of American values in our foreign policy. You see hints of it when you see the president so moved by a Syrian child choking on uh, the chemical weapons. There's something about being the President of the United States and not being able to look the other way when bad things happen in the world. And so um, I hope that the President will get a chance when he travels abroad to meet with democracy advocates, to meet with people who are refusing to take no for an answer on should they have the same rights that we have. Uh, as I said, people who are risking jail and you know religious objectors, and they are inspiring people. One of the most inspiring people I met actually was a Russian woman who had created a civil society group in Russia about the rights of the disabled. Now, those of us who are Russianists know that, that the Soviet Union and Russia before it because the Soviet man and even the Russian man was supposed to be perfect, they literally would sweep disabled people off the streets. Mm -hmm. And she had limited sight. She said, that can't happen anymore. Right? So these are inspiring people. And I hope he, the president, gets to meet some of these inspiring people. I would say to the rest of the world, though, America's, North, America's a North Star 
it's not because we're perfect. It's because we're really imperfect. It's because we started out with this birth defect called slavery. And even today, it affects the way that we look at each other and so what we sometimes see and how we behave. And yet, we keep stumbling ahead and getting a little bit better. And We the People becomes an ever broader definition in the United States. And um, I stand to be, uh, to be sworn in uh, under a portrait of Benjamin Franklin uh, by a Jewish woman Supreme Court justice, and I think to myself, what would he have thought, yep. right? He wouldn't have seen it coming. <laughs> so, uh, so it's not perfection. Uh, Madison said, I never expected the American Constitution to be the work of the perfect work by perfect men. Uh, democracy is actually the best system because it moderates and mitigates against imperfections. Authoritarianism, because all power resides in one or a few, is likely to exacerbate human imperfections. And so I would say to them, whatever you think about how we're stumbling and how it's hard and how we're cacophonous and how we yell at each other and, and all those things, uh, yeah, we're just getting up every day and we're trying to put another brick in the edifice of American democracy and uh, wherever you are and whoever you are, you need to do the same. Wow. So I don't want to ruin that ending, but I, I actually have to. Uh, <laughs> first, I want to thank Frank and Larry for their great comments and questions. Uh, second, the most important thing I want to do is I want to tell you, you now have to go buy the book, okay? You got a little appetizer, you need to go buy the main course now, you need to advertise it, especially these young people on Facebook and Twitter and Vukontakte, uh, get this book around, because I think what you just heard, I don't think you timed it this way, uh, but what, what better anecdote to some of the anxieties around the world in our own country than this brand new book of which you just heard about. So uh, the last thing I just want to say again is congratulations, Connie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies. <laughs>